0: Please be seated. Kind of a fair question for you, a pretty simple question right there. Is The title of the service this morning, is it not? What do you see? Or if I can put it another way, because I'm going to conclude that way, who do you see when you're looking at this text? What in the world do you see when we come into this passage? We've been in it for a few weeks, and as I said, we'll get through Lord willing, verse 34 today, could not do that before this. But here in chapter nine, we have, without question, witnessed the healing of a man that was born blind, as we've seen over and over again. What we do know is this: man was healed by Jesus. There is no question about that. He did it in the presence of his disciples. He did it in a in a way that was undeniable undeniable the neighbors knew it the disciples knew it the man knew it and we say the neighbors that's the people of the town they all knew what had happened and don't kid yourself when you look closely at the passage the parents knew it they knew it happened but they knew of a threat and that was of a greater concern to them as a result of this miracle which has been undeniable the neighbors had taken this man who now could see to the Pharisees. And they, you might recall that we learned this earlier in the book and particularly even in chapter 8, they, that is the Pharisees, are out to kill Jesus. They are not interested in what he can do, can't do, where he came from, what God's doing in his life. They have one purpose it is to kill him. It is to absolutely destroy him. I could get off onto a tangent very easily for the entire message this morning how there today in the world that we're living in, there is, or there are, I should put, people, there are organizations who absolutely would destroy Christianity and would seek to abolish any use of the name of Jesus Christ. But I won't go there. They were trying to kill Jesus. They had also threatened excommunication. Now, excommunication is something that I am familiar with, not because I had it, but uh, growing up in Roman Catholicism. Although, if they knew what I believe now, I'm long gone from there, they would have probably excommunicated me anyway. But at any rate, it's when you can know you are not welcomed. You cannot come back unless you repent of your ways and so forth. It's to be thrown out of something. And they had threatened excommunication to anyone who would say that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. If anyone would profess that, they could no longer serve or even attend the synagogue. That meant everything. And to a Jewish family, the image was so important to be able to go to church, that as we think of church, but be able to get together and go into the synagogue and worship God and be able to be involved in discussions and so forth and so on and all the various things that went on. So to be cast out of the synagogue was a devastating thing and would have communal effects uh, on them as a family. But that was out there. So an investigation is underway. They have talked to the man already as far as where our text is today. He told them what happened. He told them how he was able to see. And the man concluded, and that's where we left off, the man concluded that Jesus was a prophet, verse 17. So the conclusion that he had come to so far was that this man who had healed him was a prophet. And that brings us to verse 18. This is where we left off last week. And it leaves us in the scene where the parents are going to be brought in before the Pharisees. So we pick it up this morning right there in verse 18, and we address the parents. What did they see? Well, we have it in your outline, and that's my opinion, and that's just uh, the way I looked at it. The parents, in my opinion, all they see is one thing. Danger. We could be cast out of the synagogue. What will become of me? What will become of us if we confess that what has happened to our son is of God, and this person who the Pharisees are against is the Messiah. What will that do to me? And so they see danger. In verse 18, it's interesting because we see the absolute stubbornness of the Pharisees. And I mentioned last week, and we spent time on the fact that the human heart is so stubborn. And though... (coughs) <clears throat> Pardon me. Obviously, I'm not going to be shaking hands tonight. <clears throat> and and so stubborn that we get so hard that no matter what evidence is presented to us, when we are set in our ways, we don't want to believe anything. Well, look at this. Number one, in verse 18, they knew this man. He had been there day after day, daily. We saw that. They knew who he was. And he said, and they also had heard the neighbors when they came to him, uh, came to them and brought this man, they had heard what the man had said already, right through verse 17. And there was all the evidence that they needed right there, but they're so stubborn that what happens is now they're not even going to believe it until the parents are brought. So verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him. What it is, is they just resisted it. They thought he was lying. They thought that the people were lying. They did not want to believe that this had happened. So what happens is that they brought, notice the wording there, that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. They could now see that this man could see them. They could now see that this man was professing that it had taken place and he could see color and he could understand things now it was so obvious but they come up with a series of questions in verse 19 and they bombard him uh, they bombard excuse me the parents with them and here they are there's three of them really is this your son who was born blind so number one is this your son we want absolute proof now is this your son secondly was he born blind? That's what they're saying to him. Yeah, who, when they say, who say he was born blind? And the third part of it is, then how does he see? How did he come to see? Is this your son? Pretty straightforward questions. Was he born blind? And if that's so, then how in the world did he receive his sight? We want to know. Notice the responses, verses 20 and 21. Very simple straightforward verse 20 his parents answered and said we know that this is our son at least they weren't going to deny that this is our son no question you know i'm not sure maybe the color of the eyes have changed or something like that no at least they admit this is our son now follow it number two answer the second question yes He was born blind. That we can attest to. That is true. We're okay so far. Things just seem to be going pretty good until we get to verse 21. In verse 21 says this. But how he sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. What happens when they come to the third question is, we don't
1: know. We have no idea. That was a lie. That was a lie. Why did they do this?
0: Verse 22 makes it evident. That's why we can say it's a lie. His parents said this for one reason and one reason only. They were afraid.
1: Can you imagine this? This is outrageous, in my opinion.
0: Absolutely outrageous. Can you imagine yourself in this situation? To have a child come into this world. You're looking forward for this birth. One of the most exciting things that takes place in human experience. (coughs) I probably have shared this with you before, but I'll do it again. The first time I heard my wife was pregnant, I went crazy. Well, wait a minute. Maybe I shouldn't say that because you know I'm crazy. But at any rate, what happened was I got in the car. I don't know why I didn't use the telephone. I started driving around visiting my family. My wife's expecting. My wife's expecting. And they rejoiced. And then when I left, they probably said, so what did he drive over here? Why didn't he pick up the phone and tell us? You know, that's the truth. I was so excited about this event. Our first child, we're going to have a child. And then uh, when the child came, and I can tell you that with every single one of my childhood children that have been born, all five, it was such an exciting event. Can you imagine that? You're anticipating this. Tremendous joy. The child comes into the w- world, and then a doctor comes over. Now, they didn't have the system that we have today, but basically someone comes over and says, your child can't see. Your child's been born blind. You can imagine the devastation that would happen to a parent. There are some of you that have had things that have happened with children, and it's devastating. You feel that pain. Now, obviously, out of the admittance of the parents alone, this child has grown. They said, ask him. He's of age. The child is no longer a child. He is considered a man.
1: All those years... No sight. He now sees. And the parents know it. He is our child. He's born blind.
0: We know that. We've been through all the agony. Remember what that meant. Outcast of society. Begging on the streets. Heartache. Years of it. And now he comes in. Mom,
1: Dad, I can see. Oh, no! Can you imagine yourself doing that? They threw him under the bus. They did.
0: There's no excitement. These people should be rejoicing. There should be no end of excitement. I cannot imagine a child of mine coming into the world in that condition and then finding out they can see and say, Oh, woe is with me. What has happened? I mean, you really need to put yourself physically in this situation and understand what's going on here to really understand the hardness of man's heart. The parents, who above everybody else, should absolutely be celebrating. They should be calling all of their friends over to the house. We are having a party. Our son was born blind, and now
1: he sees. We know who did it. We don't know what's happened, but come celebrate with us. No one's celebrating.
0: I mentioned that in closing last night. It, one of the biggest things that hit me in this passage was that. The parents aren't rejoicing. The neighbors aren't rejoicing. The Pharisees are not rejoicing. And as I said, just as I closed last week, neither are the disciples. The people who knew Jesus Christ, who walked with him, they're observing and they didn't even see the man in the condition in Christ, the one who could do it and bring him to Christ, they began to question the sinfulness of the man or his parents. And I see nowhere in the text where they're rejoicing over this at all as well. Now, it doesn't give us everything. Instead of rejoicing, the parents are petrified. They're afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid
1: of men rather than being afraid of God. It's absolutely amazing.
0: Their own son, who they should be rejoicing with, they turn around and say, he's of age. Ask him, why? Because they could be thrown out of the synagogue. Verse 22. We ought not, application here for a moment. Listen, we ought not to be afraid of men no matter what.
1: And we are all the time. Nor should we seek to please men. You say, how? First of all, in salvation.
0: There are those who won't come to believe on Jesus Christ, and that's the excuse they use. They're so afraid of what their family will think. I know of people who have heard the gospel over and over and over again, and they could witness. And I'll tell you something. I do know of people who have witnessed who aren't saved. You say, it's impossible, Pastor Dan. No, it's not. They can give the gospel, but they won't believe it because they will be cast out of their families and will be rejected. There are those that are so afraid of people at work and in their family that they won't even come to Christ. There are those of us who are afraid to witness, who are afraid to share the gospel. Why? Because we are fearing men rather than God. What is my co-worker going to think of me? What is my neighbor going to think of me? Oh, my family might accept me now that I'm saved, but what are they going to think if I start telling them they might not invite me to the family party next week? I can't risk that. And we rationalize things all over the place, and the bottom line is we are fearful of men rather than God. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. I just want to look at a couple of verses because I think it's so
1: appropriate. Galatians chapter 1. You'll know it. Galatians chapter 1. Paul's talking about the gospel in the context. What
0: does he say in verse 10? For I am not seeking the favor of men. Excuse me, put it this way. For I am not, am I now? It's a question. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant are a slave of you cannot please men and God we need to see that we need to be ready to please God at all costs even in preaching the gospel he was afraid for those people in the Galatian region others had come and they wanted to keep their rapport in society and so forth and even had perverted the gospel and Paul gets so strong, he says, I don't care whether an angel from heaven comes and preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. There's only one gospel. I don't care who likes me. I don't care who thinks what of me. But if we're honest, many times, we don't even serve the Lord Jesus Christ as professing believers because we are afraid of what other people are going to think about us and we don't want to rock the boat. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians
1: chapter 2. Verse 4. Paul again writing says, But just as we have
0: been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel,
1: so we speak.
0: Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We've been entrusted with the gospel. And we're going to speak and we're not going to be concerned Paul says to the Thessalonian believers who, by the way, had a tremendous testimony and there the gospel sounded forth from them throughout the whole region according to that epistle. But he says we're going to speak the gospel with boldness because we're not going to fear men. We are so afraid. I want you to go to one other passage. Go with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10.
1: With that challenge, I want to encourage you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, don't be afraid of what other people
0: are going to think about you. When God opens up the opportunity to share the gospel, share the gospel. Tell other people about Christ. Oh, you may end up with family division. God said that will happen. You may get rejected for years. We've experienced that personally. But it doesn't matter. Not if you want to follow Christ. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 26-28, through 28, I'm well aware of the context that the apostles are being sent forth and it's directed toward them. And they're going to be accused of all kinds of things and brought before the leadership. And the Lord says, don't even worry about what you're going to say because I'll tell you in that hour. And he's talking to the disciples. But I want you to just look at 26-28 for a minute. Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed, watch this, that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Wow. Even the motivation that's going on in your heart, whether or not you say it out loud, the fearing of men and so forth, he says it's going to be made known. He says don't fear them. Verse 27. What I tell you in darkness, speak, <coughs> excuse me, speak in the lights. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Who are we to fear? Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. Yes, I understand that's the apostle. Yes, we understand what that, that is in the context. Don't miss the principle here that I'm trying to get across to him. Because sometimes we are afraid to share the gospel. We're afraid what other people will think. I've experienced this situation even at funerals. And I go into a funeral as I pray about it, and I know there's unsaved there and so forth. It doesn't matter what they're going to think. I want to be compassionate. I want to be encouraging. But I know that their souls need to hear the gospel. And even if I get criticized, same with you. I'm only using a funeral as an example. It's the same with you. What are you worried about What people are going to think about you, your neighbors? What are you worried about that you might lose some family members and so forth? You ought to fear the one that can destroy the body in hell and the soul, and that's God. That's not the devil, by the way. They were fearful, so much so, and that's why I took the time on the parents. They should have been rejoicing, excited. Everything should have been that way, and they basically took him, as I said, and they passed the buck. They went right back to Genesis. This woman that you gave me, she's the problem. It's not me. It's the serpent that you brought here. You know, go talk to him. He made me sin. Rather than Adam being a man and turning around and saying, you know what, God, you're right. You told me not to, and I was wrong. That's what you have here. Parents should have turned around and said, you know what? He's our son, and we know that it was Jesus that did it. And even if they had to go so far, we're not sure he's the Christ. But it is Jesus that did it. There's no question about it. But because they feared men, they wouldn't even testify what they did know. And they basically shifted the attention away from them onto their son. I tell you, if I was their son, I probably would have said, see you later, Mom and Dad. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Now, you want me to come home for breakfast? Who are you kidding? Thanks a lot. So for this reason, they say, "Ah, he's of age, ask him. What an illustration. A couple other thoughts just in passing, so I want to move on to the, the next section. I believe it's incidences like this that caused Job to say, I'm sorry, Satan to say what he did to God about Job. What is it? He said, you give me Job and let me get to him and he'll deny you. Why? Because as Satan looks around, he sees the things that we do. And he sees how quickly we're ready to walk away from the things of God. Praise God with Job, as you well know, that he didn't fear men. That he stuck to his guns, And he praised God, and the devil was wrong. Men, when pressure comes on us, women, when pressure hits us, oftentimes we turn away from the things of God. We should not. They were fearful. That's a good question for us. Who do we fear? Do we fear God? Do we fear men? Next aspect. What about the leaders? Now we go to verses 24 to 34, which I read. What did the leaders see? Did they see a miracle? Did they see the hand of God? Did they see a man born blind who could now see who they should be rejoicing over? Did they see any of that? That's why I had that responsive reading. You know what they are? Blind men leading the blind. That's all they are. Blind men leading the blind. What do they see? They see a sinner. They don't see Jesus Christ and what he did. They look at him and they say, tell us. We know that this guy's a sinner. Notice their statement. This is appalling. Verse 24. Here's their statement. So the second time, they call the man back. All right, we get the parents. They're afraid. We can't throw them out. They did what we wanted. They didn't say it was Christ. Let's get the guy back here. Let's deal with him. And so what do they say? Isn't this pious? Give glory to God. Come on. These are the religious leaders. Miracles in front of them. God's handiwork's in front of them. What do they do? Religious terminology. Give glory to God. Come on. Now they really look pompous. I'm going to do a little side trip on that one for just a second. Just to make us aware and be alert, I have seen over and over again as a pastor, praise the Lord, that's it. As soon as you hear praise the Lord, you're not supposed to go any further. That's what they're saying. Give glory to God, we're going to give you the answer. Forget everything that happened. People say praise the Lord, or people say, and by the way, we should say praise the Lord, so don't be afraid to do that. That's not what I'm saying. God said to me. God spoke to me. Look at what God is doing in this situation. Expressions like that are used often when people want to do something contrary to the word of God. And you are supposed to, because of the religious terminology, because of the cloud that was just put over your head to make you look like you don't know what you're doing, we're supposed to get you to walk away from it now. That's what they're doing. Give glory to God. In other words, forget all the truth. Let's give glory to God and let's make a lie. What is a lie? That which is contrary to the word of God. The devil, we have learned in John, is the father of lies and was from the beginning and it starts with... Has God said?
1: Rather than seeing the argument over and saying, God said it, that's it. Come
0: on. Praise the Lord. Look what's going on anyway. I know what the Bible says. If you think I'm out in left field, you're kidding yourself. That's happening everywhere in religious circles today. What hypocrisy they would be the first to call others hypocrites. And you know what? It comes up and up over and over again. I'm going to tell you something. We just said this in the men's meeting on Saturday. Christians are often called hypocrites. And you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. Every single one of us is a hypocrite. Because we don't live perfectly what we say. But we always see the hypocrisy in other people's lives. And the more a person tries to live for God, when one little thing goes wrong, it's not seen as that person is just a sinner, that God's working in their life. The whole bit of hypocrisy is thrown out and used as an argument. By who? The very people who are the hypocrites. That's what happened here. These are the religious leaders that are turning around saying, give glory to God, when in a fact they were not doing it. Give glory to God. Why? We know that this man is a sinner. The reason they were saying give glory to God is because they, that is this man, and the parents and the neighbors were not following the traditions of the elders. They were just giving testimony to what God was doing. They were supposed to do everything the way the Pharisees wanted. And they turn around with boldness and say this man is a sinner. You notice that? The disciples, who sinned, this man or his parents? The Pharisees, we know that he, that is Jesus Christ, we know he's a sinner. And never once they turn around and say, you know, we're sinners. God, be merciful to me. God, all the evidence is here as to what you're doing. Forgive me for looking at this the way I was looking at it. I don't know about you, but that has application to my
1: life. Often we see sin in everybody else's life
0: just like that. We never see it in our own. Never see it in our own. We don't want to see it. We don't think it's there. We think everybody else is a hypocrite. We never want to think that we are. We'd be appalled. Appalled. We see everybody else in their condition and never see ours. That is the Pharisees. That is the Sadducees. And I personally love verse 25. And if you are a believer that came to know Christ last night or this morning, this I could spend two months on for a message in and of itself. Verse 25, I love it. Here's the man, second time before them. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see, and I always put this in because it's not in the verse, but he's already said it. Jesus did it. All I know is I was blind, now I see, Jesus is the one that did it. That's all I can tell you. You judge whether he's a sinner. You judge all these things that you want to do. This is what he was saying to them. That, my friend, in my opinion, is the best biblical outline for a witness. Because if you get saved this morning, you can now tell others because you can say, all I know is I was lost. Now I am on my way to heaven and my sins are forgiven and Jesus Christ did it. And I can't even quote Bible verses, but that I can tell you. And if you're in this building this morning, and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're not telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ, you're denying your Lord. And it isn't because you don't know Bible verses. You know what God's done in your life. Don't ever underestimate the power of a changed
1: life. Because it's a miracle of God. We can't come to salvation on our own. He's got to do it.
0: Then we get to probably my favorite part as we go on, is the sarcasm that comes from this sinning, blind guy, so to speak. Right. Look at it. Verses 26 to 29. The discussion continues. Verse 26. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answers them, What's the matter with you? they basically call him a liar he says i told you already and you didn't listen why do you want to hear it again i know you want to become his disciples that's the secret message in your heart right too right can you imagine you see the difference his parents fear these guys this guy's got no fear whatsoever what's he got to fear i've been blind all my life now i can see what are these guys going to do make the condition worse i can see now they can't see And he goes to them and says, I I know the secret, really. You want to follow him, right? So you want to try it again. Let me give you another version, a different way. No, they they were basically accusing him of lying. That's what was going on here. And the sarcasm is great. Notice what else is said here now. This is amazing. He goes on and says uh, to them, uh, let's go. Do you want me to become his disciples? They reviled him and said to him, you are his disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken uh, to Moses, but for this man... Now, notice what they say. We do not know where he is from. Now, maybe it doesn't ring a bell to you, but it should. Go back with me to John chapter 7.
1: That's kind of amazing. These Pharisees are so flustered, they don't know what to do. You
0: remember what they said in verse 27? of john 7
1: look at it however we know this man what we know where
0: this man is from chapter 9 we don't know where he's from they don't know what they're talking about they're just totally confused they're clinging one minute we know where he's from next minute we don't know where he's from One minute we know who he is, then we don't know who he is. One minute we know you were blind, now we don't know you were blind. One minute we know you can see, now we don't think you can see the way you didn't see before. They're totally confused. Why are they confused? Because they won't give in to the truth. What sarcasm. They have been appealing in those verses. Before they appealed to Abraham, remember, Abraham's our father. Jesus Christ said, no, he's not. God's our father. No, he's not. Satan is. Now, Moses is our father because God saw him face to face. They knew the Old Testament. They are appealing to everybody and anybody. And again, I won't spend time on it, but that happens in religious circles. So-and-so said, thus and thus, this person said, issue's supposed to be all done.
1: Really? We're a follower of this one. We're a follower of that one. How about being a follower of Christ? What does he do? He, with sarcasm, criticizes them, and they
0: turn around and they revile him. The time's getting away and I want to continue on to wind this down. So I'm just, I won't turn. I'll give you some references. The only <coughs> example <coughs> excuse me, in Scripture of reviling is found in Acts chapter 23 verses 1 through 4. You can look at that on your own. But it is interesting. That's when Paul was talking and he spoke to the high priest and he said, you whitewashed fence. And the only other place it's used is in 1 Peter chapter 2, which you're very familiar with. When Christ was reviled, he reviled not again. That word reviled has to do with speaking harshly against someone. Intent on deliberately hurting them. It is throwing insults at him. It is ridiculing the individual. It is being absolutely rude. The lexicons say that the synonym for this word is blasphemy. They were basically attacking in such a way that was the equivalency of blasphemy itself. That's how hard they're coming down on this guy. So when you see that little word that they began reviling him, that's what's involved. Verse 28. And they're trying to cling to Moses and so forth. And then what you end up is with, you find out who the real scholar is in verses 30 to 33 as I wrap it up. In verses 30 to 33, we find out the progress that this man has made. And the man answered and said to them, Well, can you see the sarcasm here? Well, this is kind of an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. And then here he is, the beggar on the street talking to the religious know-it-alls, and he says this, "We know that God does not hear sinners." That's Psalm 66:18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, you probably quoted it. The Lord won't hear me. He knew that as a blind man. So he reminds them God won't listen to sinners, will he? This is common sense, as one writer put it. I think it was Carson that said that. The most obvious case of common sense that there is in the Bible. What you've got here is a situation where he goes on and says, but if any man is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. They couldn't deny that. Since the beginning of time, it was never heard that anyone had opened the eyes of a person born blind, go through your Old Testament and go through and see miracles, you'll find miracles of blind being healed, (coughs) but not blind from birth. He says there's no evidence of that. And then he says this amazing statement. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And that's why I have in your notes what I believe you have here in this particular situation is you have the man who sees the hand of God. The man who's able to see the hand of God. Watch the progress. This man was blind. Next thing, all he knew was Jesus had done it. The next thing is he's calling Jesus maybe a prophet. Now he's saying that he's from God. And Lord willing, at the end of the chapter, what we're going to see is he now comes and confesses him as Lord. This, my friend, is an example of John chapter 6, verse 44. Unless... A man be drawn by the Father. He cannot come to Jesus. God is working in this man's heart and he's slowly coming to him. And these Pharisees had rejected him. And so what happens in verse 34, and then I'll wrap it up. They answered, you were born entirely in sins." You know what? They were dead wrong. Remember what God said? He didn't sin. Neither did his parents. This is is for the glory of God. John says in John 20, I have written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. This is here in our Bibles so we would see who Jesus Christ is. They say to him, you are a sinner. And what they basically did in verse 34 Are you teaching us? And with boldness, I like to speak up for this man and say, He absolutely is teaching you. And they put him out. Some commentators say, He just threw him out of the meeting. I don't think so. When you compare that in the text with verse 22, He absolutely was thrown out, excommunicated because this man was saying that Jesus was from God. And where we're going to find Him next time, is out of the synagogue on the street. And he comes to Christ. In summary, through this point of verse 34, can you see the hardness of man's heart? Number one, and not even coming and opening himself up to the gospel. Give them all kinds of evidence and they got excuses galore. Excuses galore even when they see the evidence. That can happen even to believers, not for salvation, but when we see the hand of God working and then deny it. Second point to bring to your attention, as I mentioned this morning, how often do we see everybody else as a sinner and fail to see the sin in our own life? Sometimes even to come down on believers when we don't see the hypocrisy that's going on in our own life. Listen, when you are raised in a church like Fellowship Bible Church, or uh, you have the teaching with any one of our sister churches that we are in fellowship with, that I, that I know of, and I just refer to them, like Grace and Cornerstone or Salem, where the Word of God is being taught, You can know the Word so well, and you can be the Christian who wants every little thing in place, and when someone does something wrong in the church, you'll be the first one to say, this is out of place, that's
1: out of place, this is wrong. And you never see the sin in your own life. Never see what's going on. Talk about hypocrisy. Or oh, the fear of men. Maybe you haven't come to Christ because you fear what your parents are going to think. Or your boss. You need
0: to fear God, not men. Maybe you're not witnessing because you're afraid what your relatives are going to think. Yeah, you might have to spend a few years where your relatives don't even want to talk to you or your children because you're now professing Christ. Fear God, not them. Yeah, you might have some trouble with your
1: spouse because you've trusted Christ and you want to live for him. Trust God. Most of
0: all, I close with this, the very question I asked in the outline.
1: What do you say? Pharisees were blind not the other guy he saw what do we see who
0: do we see I just quoted John wrote this and put this in the word of God so that we might understand that Jesus is the Christ do you see the hand of God do you see Jesus Christ working do you see the compassion of Jesus Christ in this passage do you see the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ with his own disciples do you see how he cared for men and wasn't caught up in theological discussions all his life, as so many professing believers are? Do we see the hand of God so that when we
1: see what God's doing, we can rejoice? What do you say? Close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you for how you've used this passage in my life Personally,
0: Father, so often, even as a professing believer, we get blind to the things that you're doing. We sometimes have you in our own little box. We sometimes are so caught up in our little picky little things and see the sin in other people's lives and never recognize it in our own. Father, even a message like this and a passage like this, it's so easy to be sitting in a local assembly and even thinking of how this applies to everybody else around us, failing to see the application for our own lives. Help us, Father, to have our eyes open spiritually. We thank you and praise you. The Spirit of God has been given us to dwell. He will guide us in truth. Help us to open our eyes to see the things that you're doing. Help us to open our eyes to see the Word of God. Help us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Help us, Father, when we see your hand working to do things maybe in ways that we didn't anticipate, to be able to rejoice when it is consistent with the Word of God. And I pray, Father, if there be anyone with fearing and not witnessing and not serving in certain capacities, Help us, Father, to fear you rather than men. And if there be anyone here that has not yet come to Christ, whatever it is they're fearing, whatever it is that's on their heart and mind, whatever it is that's keeping them blind, we pray that you'd open their eyes, that they might come to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing they would have eternal life and forgiveness. Thank you for patiently getting us here today with this weather. Pray for safety as we go home. We ask these things in Jesus' name.